Looks like we're about at time or close enough, so we'll go ahead and get started. Picking back up into Zechariah today. We won't finish it. we still got a little ways to go. Probably next week we'll be finishing it up and then moving on from there to Malachi. That'll probably take about a week, week or two from there. And then we'll move on to whatever lies ahead for us. We've gotten several suggestions, so I'll be taking a look at those here in the next week and then look in, kind of seeing how much time I have left here the length of some of these books and talk to pastor and we'll kind of formulate a plan, but still keep any suggestions coming in and we'll see. I know we've gotten some even crazier suggestions, really trying to put me to the test at the end of Vicarage and make me get all the way through the book lest I have the next vicar cursing me for leaving him with something crazy. So, but yeah, we'll be looking at that probably, probably by next week. I'll finally get something settled in, and then if we're kind of torn between the two, the next week we'll put it up to a vote and do it the democratic way for that. So before we get back into our study of Zechariah, let's open with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so as I was hoping to promise last week, this week is going to be a lot easier. Last week we had all the crazy visions, we had the golden lamp stands with each of the lamps having these seven lips on it and trying to figure out all of that. Then we had a flying scroll that was about 30 feet long and 15 feet high or something like that flying through. So we had to interpret that. We had a woman in a basket. So that was a nice, fun one to deal with and see what exactly he was bringing about there, talking about purging the idols and sending them back to their home country of Babylon and not letting them make their stay within the new Jerusalem, the new temple that was being built up here. We had the four chariots, then we had this crown and the temple, this crown that was going to be placed in this new temple that was being built, ultimately a fulfillment of Christ. So looking forward to that promised Messiah there. Then in seven, we had a call for justice, and we'll kind of be picking this argument back up here and here today. Remember, you had those guys that came in and they were asking, you know, hey, should we continue on this fasting and this abstention? You know, should we continue on? Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? And then the Lord answers through Zechariah and gives him some wisdom here of who's to blame for all this of, you know, they had their, their hearts were diamond hard, as the Lord puts it in verse 12 of chapter 7. And so who is really to blame for all of this was the hardness of their own heart, them hardening their own hearts, not returning to the Lord as he would have them return. And so we're going to be picking back up kind of mid-argument here in chapter 8. So remember in Zechariah, the rebuilding of the temple, the Lord says, hey, start rebuilding this temple. People say, eh, we'll hold off a little bit. We'll build up our own houses. You had Haggai coming in and say, hey, get your butts in gear, start rebuilding this temple. And then during that same time, roughly, you have Zechariah coming in as well. So contemporary of Haggai coming in, similar message, but through means of some more extravagant visions and I mean, even just the length of the book, just a few chapters of Haggai versus 14 of Zechariah. So similar message, but just given in a different way for that. So picking up into 8 verse 1. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. All right, so just in these two verses, 
the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, repeated over and over, as well as the Lord being jealous. And we've seen that pop up all throughout the Minor Prophets, all throughout Scripture. Even in Exodus, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We see that there. And we see that here as well, that he is jealous for his people. And the other Minor Prophets, they all kind of blur together at this point. I can't remember which one exactly, but basically the Lord having almost a love song for them of, I loved you, I have done all of these things. Remember the Exodus, remember this, remember this. And this is how you've treated me with unfaithfulness. So the Lord is angry. He is jealous that they would be cheating on him with these pagan gods, going to the pagan temples down the road and worshiping those gods and then coming back to the temple on Saturday and saying, oh, we love you too, Lord. No, that's not how it's going to work. You can't play both, both sides here. So the Lord is a jealous God, which is just in complete contrast to what we think of today of, you know, well, to be jealous is a bad thing. So you have all these open relationships today of, well, if you're jealous and you don't really love someone, you know, let them go off with someone else. And if you're jealous, well, you just, I don't know what they would say. But here we see this, that this jealousy from the Lord is a good thing, that he loves his people, that he desires them to be faithful, that he wants them to return to him in repentance. And then we'll see that continue on here in verse 3 with the Lord responding to their unfaithfulness. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So the rebuilding of the temple, the Lord now coming back to dwell with his people. After they've returned from the Babylonian captivity, now rebuilding this temple, the Lord is going to dwell with them in the temple here. But notice how he says that Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. Have they been faithful? No, not at all, not in the least. I mean, we see that with all throughout Scripture even through the wilderness and everything. So why is it that he is able to call them the faithful city? They kept the Torah, Torah, so they kept the rules and and all that, as far Mm. as they kept the books together. Mm. Bingo. The Lord's faithfulness here. So because of his faithfulness, we're going to jump ahead But look at verse 8. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, in faithfulness and in righteousness. Whose faithfulness and righteousness is he speaking of? His own. The Lord's faithfulness. The Lord's righteousness. And so he is imputing this faithfulness, this righteousness, onto a faithless people. It, not faithless, but unfaithful people that have continued to. Yeah. So this imputation of righteousness onto an unfaithful people. Any connections to the New Testament? Any connections to us today who are an unfaithful people? But on the basis of the Lord's faithfulness, his righteousness, he gives that righteousness, that faithfulness to us, imputed, not of any works of our own, but because of who he is and what he has done. So back into verse 3, we have, And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So we have this imputation of faithfulness, and we have a mountain here. Make some New Testament connections, if you will of Mount Calvary. We also see that with Abraham and Isaac that go up the mountain. Abraham is going to sacrifice his son, but said, on that mountain it shall be provided. On the mountain that our Lord would go up, it will be provided. That faithfulness given to us. 
Any questions there? Any comments or anything? So again, who would have thought in the Old Testament they're not saved by works but by faith? Hmm. Completely contrary to what we think of in the Old Testament and everything. Was Abraham justified by his own works? No. It was on account of his faith. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. All right, so we have this new Jerusalem, these new city streets that are going to be coming about, where then old men and old women can sit there with their staff. Well, if they have a staff in their hand and they're sitting there, they're at peace. There's no warfare going on, because how can you get up to a high age when there's warfare going on? There's not really going to be many old men left, because they would have all died in these battles throughout these ages. So the very fact that there's old men being able to dwell in these streets with a staff shows that there has been this peace that has come, that they then can grow old to an old age here. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. All right, so if there's warfare going on, even today, we're less and less likely to let our kids go play out in the streets because of increased corruption. So the very fact that there are now boys and girls playing in the streets, parents are fine with it, there's peace. So again, here we got to kind of reshape and rethink of the time period that he's speaking of here. Sure, there could be some present peace that he's speaking of, of this new Jerusalem. But what is this greater Jerusalem, this greater peace that he's ultimately speaking of? The new Jerusalem, the new age that is to come. And we'll see that play out here in just a little bit with some, was it in chapter 10, if we get there today, with some talk of some military battles and everything. And we see that it just doesn't quite fit with a temporal view of military, the temporal view of these nations, this peace. Rather, Zechariah is speaking of something far greater than just a temporal new Jerusalem here. Verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. So a little bit of a rhetorical question here. And brings out the remnant again. We've seen that pop up. It's all throughout Scripture, this faithful remnant, that even though they went off into the Babylonian captivity, the Lord would sustain a remnant to come back. Through the image of the remnant, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, in faithfulness and in righteousness. We have the Lord here saying, I will save my people. What does the name Jesus mean? Yeah, the Lord saves. So here, again, kind of all these Old Testament connections fulfilled in Christ Behold, I will save my people. So we have from the east to the west. So this far-reaching saving of the Lord's people, far beyond just the geographic confines of this Jerusalem here. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So this in-gathering of people from as far as the east is to the west, gathering into this Jerusalem and they will be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. So again, it is in the Lord's faithfulness and the Lord's righteousness. But for this ingathering of the people into this new Jerusalem, I'm going to go on a little bit of a field trip here to Hebrews chapter 12. I know it's going to be a familiar text to all of you, but... 
Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to get a little bit of a running head start, just because it's incredibly marvelous, marvelous book. I found a new love for the book of Hebrews. I was able to take a class at the seminary as the class was, I can't remember the, the Epistle of Hebrews as a Christological homily or something like that. They always have those long names that you can't really make sense of. But the basis of the class was the book of Hebrews being originally written as a sermon given to the early church. Don't know the specific congregation or anything. Even the author of Hebrews, there's debates of is it Paul or whoever. So not getting into that. But so what we did in this class is we read through the entire book of Hebrews from start to finish the very first class period. So he had one of us go up there and read through it as though he was delivering a whole sermon. And so you see this whole connection. You see these ebbs and flows, these expositions of Scripture, then these exhortations to the people of saying, as this has happened, so now do this, be faithful, run the race, so on and so forth. So you see these ebbs. It took about an hour. So it was just one guy. He didn't know what he was getting himself into, but he stood up there and was reading through it. He did a marvelous job for doing it on the fly. It was great. But just reading through the entire thing. And so you were just sitting there and listening to the book as though you were sitting in a church, just listening to a sermon. It was just a marvelous thing. It was one of the best things of the seminary that I've had so far, is just sitting there and getting this new perspective on the book of Hebrews. And then we spent you know, the next 10 weeks having to no, it wasn't even 10, well, technically 10 weeks, but then our professor was actually from Sweden or Finland. So he came in for a week intensive, and so it was like every night for three hours for the whole week we were meeting. So it was, it was a slog, and through that one week we had to translate the entire book of Hebrews. It was insane. But anyway, so all throughout that, it just a newfound love and appreciation for the book of Hebrews. I'd really commend it to you to just... Sit down. You can probably read it even quicker than an hour. You know, he was reading it slower for emphasis on certain things. But just sitting there and just kind of seeing it kind of as a sermon. It's just a fun thing to to see that we don't necessarily think of. Tangent aside, though, to get back onto the other tangent of Hebrews 12. So just previously you had the great, now by faith, you know, so-and-so. You have Abraham all these people. You have these great cloud of witnesses here. So 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So you have founder and perfecter, the archegos and the teleotes. So arche, the beginning Teleotes, the fulfiller, the finisher. So you have Jesus on the cross saying, Telestai, it is finished. So the beginning and the end, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So the audience here being the early church, facing all these widespread persecutions that are coming. So the author here giving this to them as an exhortation of endurance, enduring this suffering, looking to Christ as the one who has run the race, the founder and the perfecter, who has faithfully run that race before you, endured all of these sufferings that you are suffering, and did so in faithfulness. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So it makes sense here why I went to Hebrews 12 here in a minute. But just for the sake of the continuity of his argument that he's making. So we have Christ, the founder and perfecter, the one who has endured all of this suffering. And so now the author is saying, have you forgotten the 
the exhortation that addresses you as sons of don't regard this discipline lightly, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises, better word there used is scourges. Think John's gospel of the Lord being scourged. Same word used there. So the Lord, or the Lord disciplines the one he loves and scourges every son whom he receives. So we have the father scourging his son and then receives him into the heavenly temple, the holy of holies where his blood is spilled upon the mercy seat here. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So I'll be preaching about this, not this Sunday, but next Sunday. It's a different text, but I'll be bringing out Hebrews 12, most likely, of this suffering that we endure in this life and the role of suffering. We don't like the word suffer. It kind of has a dirty context in our minds today of we try to reduce suffering whenever possible. We see suffering as purely evil. But what is he speaking of here? This suffering, this scourging that takes place. Is it just for nothing? No. Is the Lord disciplines the son whom he loves, and he's treating you as his son. That just as he disciplined, scourged his son to receive him, he scourges you with any number of sufferings that you may be purified, that he may purify you from these sins that you cling on to and free you to this new life. So there's going to be a lot more. I'll be preaching about that here in a couple of weeks with Romans 5. You remember suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. I forget the exact order. Yeah, the exact order there, but talking about this suffering. So he's carrying on this argument. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And then he continues on that, you know, father disciplines as well. So with that frame in mind, then let's skip ahead to verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. So here he's speaking of the old covenant being instituted on Mount Sinai. So he's saying, you have not come to this mountain where this old covenant was instituted. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. So again, if you buy the argument that this was originally written as a sermon, as a homily, you have all the people sitting here in the pews. Not that they maybe had pews, I don't know. But so they're all sitting here, enduring all this persecution that was going on. And so he's saying, hey, remember this old mountain, this fearsome, you know, tempests and all these trumpets and everything that you couldn't approach lest you be struck dead. And he's saying, but you have come to this holy mountain, the city of the living God. He's speaking in the present tense here, well, in the perfect with the present resultant state here. So you have come, you are here right now in this sanctuary, the heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable angels and festal gathering, into the assembly of the firstborn who are in, enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we have this sprinkling of blood, not going to get all the way into that rabbit hole, but 
all the Old Testament, the sprinkling of the blood onto the people to purify them. You have more than just sprinkling sometimes a whole like half a basin just tossed onto the people of blood to cleanse them. So there's this new covenant. So again, in this present tense, you have come here for this sprinkling of blood. You've come into the presence of Jesus, this mediator of this new covenant. When in the New Testament is it speaking of the new covenant? The words of institution. On the night when our Lord was betrayed, instituting the new covenant in his blood. So we have here the Lord's Supper in mind here. So you have come here to this Mount Zion, this new Jerusalem, with all these angels and everything in festal gatherings surrounding you for this new blood, this new covenant, this sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we have the Lord being present here on this new Jerusalem, this ingathering of the people to the new Jerusalem that Zechariah is speaking of, ultimately fulfilled on the last day when the Lord will truly gather all of us to that new heavens, the new earth, that new Jerusalem. But already here on this side of eternity, we have a picture of that, that our Lord is gathering us to the new Jerusalem of faith, of whatever church, all throughout the world here. He gathers his people up to these new Jerusalem that he may give his body, his blood, that he may be present with his people already being in their midst. Again, ultimate fulfillment on that last day. So we get a little bit of what Zechariah is speaking of here, that he is ultimately speaking of this latter fulfillment that, he, that will come. Any questions on Hebrews 12? Again, any chance I get, I love going to Hebrews. It's just one most beloved books by me, so I just got to go there when I can. I think there is a question up here. Would you please elaborate on the blood of Abel, please? Mm-hmm. Let me get flipped all the way back over there. No, no, you're... I was preemptive in switching, so... Yeah, so your study note's helpful here. On uh, verse 24, it says, Abel's blood for vengeance pleaded to the skies, but the blood of Jesus... For our pardon cries is a hymn, uh, 433. I don't know the name of it by heart. Here, so we have this spilling of the blood of, um, of Abel here. The blood was spilled for the act of vengeance. But then we have the spilling of our Lord's blood, not for the sake of vengeance, but for purification, that he may sprinkle us clean and Establish this new covenant. So it's a better, a better word there. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? I would, I would just add to that exactly what you were saying. Mm-hmm. It was perfectly correct. I think the blood of Abel is also seen because it cries out for vengeance, mm-hmm. uh, justice. That's seen as the law, which is the mount. Yeah. Previously, right? Mm-hmm. And the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, Jesus' blood, the new covenant. So not the law, but the redemption in Christ. No, yeah, that's great. There's something else? I'll take that as a no. Okay. Oh, is he, oh, I I know what's going on. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we gotta have the microphone. Got everyone to hear us. They don't want to give me the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So back to Zechariah then. Zechariah eight verse nine. 
So we have the Lord already saying that he will save, that he will bring them and dwell in their midst, dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, which he is already presently doing for us, that we come to this Mount Zion each and every week. We ascend the steps there to go, go up this holy mountain to receive that blood of the new covenant. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophet, of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. So again, he's encouraging them to let your hands be strong. So don't, don't grow weary of doing this. Keep going. You're doing good. Keep on going. Keep rebuilding. Keep being faithful. Be strong. Be courageous. It's ultimately the Lord who is strengthening them in this endeavor. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety for the foe of him, for the foe from, oh my goodness. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. So again, before we had the men of old age, the women of old age, the children running in the streets because of the safety. And so the Lord is recalling to mind, Hey, remember those days when you couldn't dwell in safety, when the Lord himself set every man against his neighbor. So the Lord bringing about this judgment against the people. We saw that with the Assyrians, Babylonians, all the minor prophets up to this point. We've seen all of that going on here. So he's recalling these days where there was no wage for man or for beast, nor any safety. But then we get the great switch here in verse 11. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. So a stark contrast to those former days when there was no safety. But now he will not deal with them as he formerly has done. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit. And the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. All right, so we've got some wonderful imagery there of the vine giving its fruit. We see that with Christ, I'm the vine, you are the branches. We have the just giving of the fruit of the vine. Ground bringing forth its produce. Again, can't remember the minor prophet, but we had that previously where they sowed all the seed, and then what did they actually harvest was just but a fraction of all the labor that they put in to this land. And the heavens shall give their due. So you can't help but think of the children of Israel in the wilderness with the dew that would come and then the manna, remember, on the face of the ground there. So the heavens will give their due. Again, are they really laboring? Is he saying, oh, by your work, you know, all this will take place. The vine itself, the vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. So we saw that with the promised land. Remember milk and honey? It always kind of struck me as odd of why it was milk and honey. Like, what's the big deal with milk and honey? But one of my Old Testament professors made the point of, okay, are you laboring for milk? Do you have to sow the seed, do all this? No. The cow goes out, eats, and it brings forth milk for you. Same with honey. The bees go out, they do their thing, they come back to the hive and give you honey. The land itself provides for you without that laboring. So we have that picture in the promised land of the land flowing with milk and honey. And so now here we have the vine giving its fruit, the ground its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. So this providing for them, this great time of peace, that the land will provide. Yes, you will still probably be working in the field, all those things, but the land will give forth its fruit, its produce. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all things. Again, are they doing it on their own? No. 
The Hebrew is even more explicit. It's a specific case used there. The Lord himself, you know, I will cause. I will cause this to be about. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and the house and house of Israel, so will I save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. So him kind of giving the two bookends here, starting with being strong, giving the former days, all the troubles, what is to come. And so remember, be strong, because now you know what is coming. But now I will do these things, the Lord is saying. Any questions on those verses? All right. This is going to be a lot easier than what we had last week. So actually, it's hopefully clear this week and not just clear as mud like last week. So, 14. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. So again, the Lord brought about disaster when they were unfaithful, when they provoked his wrath. But now he is bringing about good to Jerusalem. And so do not fear. He is encouraging them. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. All right, so now he is bringing about this good. What does that mean? They just sit back and do nothing, and well, we can anger the Lord. We'll, we'll provoke his wrath. We'll keep poking him a little bit, see if he gets angry again. No, he's saying I'm bringing about good, but here's how you should live. Here is how your life as these new people should be carried out here. Speaking truth, rendering judgments in the gates. Remember all their false judgments, them taking bribes, oppressing the poor, doing all these things that provoked the wrath of our Lord against them. So now he's saying, don't do these things. Don't do these things that I hate. And then here we finally get an answer to those guys' question back in 7-1 and following that first section there when they were asking about fasting and should we continue to abstain. Here the Lord answers in 18 and following. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Right, so your study note kind of describes what those months were all about. Study note for verse 19 says, The Judeans evidently observed four fasts connected with the fall of Jerusalem. The fourth month fast commemorated the breaching of Jerusalem's walls. Uh, The fifth lamented the burning of the temple and other important buildings. The seventh marked the anniversary of the assassination of Gedaliah, provisional governor of the occupied territory. And the tenth mourned the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. So they'd observe these fasts in remembrance of this destruction, this besieging of Jerusalem. And so they've been asking, hey, should we continue to observe this Morning of what had happened. And the Lord's saying, no, you don't have to continue to mourn of these things because why? It's not the case anymore. You have this peace that has now come. And so you don't have to mourn and weep for those things that once were because now you have this peace and this goodness in the land here. So it is now this joyous time. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. 
All right, we'll finish up the chapter and then we'll pause for questions here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. All right, here, so now we get a picture of the church today, do we not, of the ideal of all these men coming with us, us bringing these other peoples from these different nations to this Jerusalem, this convergence. That's not a good word. People from these different nations coming and seeking this Lord, seeing that God is in fact with us. And so now they are coming with us to see this God who is in our midst here. We have this age of the church, which we saw, you know, in the early church, the apostles and everyone going out to the ends of the earth, bringing about this word of God to the many nations. And so this end gathering there. Nations of every tongue. So again, not just for a specific one nation, one nationality, but this, these many nations coming together seeing that they behold the God who is in our midst, who is with us. All right, questions on eight. No? All right. Going once, going twice? No? Okay. Chapter nine, then. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. All right, so we've had the burden of the word of the Lord pop up in Nahum 1 verse 1, Habakkuk 1 verse 1, and then we'll see it in Malachi 1 verse 1. Some of the translations are going to be oracle. So again, English translations, not always the most helpful sometimes. But it's the same word used here of the burden of the word of the Lord, or the oracle of the word of the Lord has come to this specific people. Again, the oracles that the prophets were bringing weren't always great news, but a burden that they'd have to carry, a burden that they'd have to go to those people and say, hey, repent or else. It would be a burdensome message that they'd have to bring to the people. So that's where we get the kind of oracle, this burden, burdensome message. It's against, it's against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. So we won't get into all those lands, not necessarily important just for our study here, but those would be the area of Syria. So then you have Tyre and Sidon being of uh, Phoenicia. So these different lands. So this word of the Lord is against these different lands. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. All right, how have we seen in the minor prophets the building up of wealth, the building up of military power? Has the Lord been intimidated by that in the least? No, one time he even is mocking them. He's like, eh, get your chariots ready, you know, build up your armies and we'll see how you do in battle against me. So we have this nation of Tyre here that is apparently very wise, but in their wisdom, they are building up ramparts and heaping up silver and fine gold, so much gold that it's just as much as the mud of the streets. So just super abundance here. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Right, so again, another reminder here of all these enemies of Israel here that have heaped up all this power, this great wealth, 
The Lord's saying, yeah, it's not, not a big deal at all. I can easily strip that all away, and they can become as nothing. So even the most fearsome enemies are but just a little speck in comparison to our Lord's might. And we get more nations here in verse 5, be kind of Philistines. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. All right, so we have them, the people that have blood in their mouths, and remember, people of Israel not supposed to consume the blood. So this would be a marker of the pagan nations that would consume the blood. So the Lord is saying, I will take away its blood and the abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. All right, so here we have this conversion of even these pagan nations, the nations that would consume the blood and completely denounce our Lord. There will be a remnant within them that will convert and return to the Lord. So again, not just the nation of Israel is the Lord's people here, believers. There are going to be believers throughout many nations, even the pagan nations, There will be converts, a remnant. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard. Again, the house being the house of the Lord, the temple that he is building here. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. So we have this... The temple that is being built, now the Lord himself is going to be a guard over it. That way it is not the house of the Lord, the encampment of his people will not be trampled upon. Again, not speaking of a specific geographic region or anything, but rather the Lord's people here, that they will be protected and being guarded by the Lord himself with his very own eyes. And then we get a pretty big shift here, at least in our minds, in verses 9 and following. Pause there, any questions or anything? Again, don't want to get too down in the weeds on the different nations. It's not going to be quite serving our purpose here of just trying to go through the books here. Again, there's, there's much you could learn. I'm sure there's a lot more to be mined from these different nations that he's speaking of, but... For the sake of being clear as crystal today, not clear as mud, we'll probably not get down in the weeds on those. Got a question? Um, Let's see, uh, chapter 9, verse Mm 8. For now I see with my own eyes. um, So who's speaking there? The Lord himself. That's strange. So he says, for now I see with my own eyes, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, like, he didn't see with his own eyes before, or now he sees what their intent is and what what their hearts are, whereas before he didn't. I'm not sure. That's kind of strange to me. Yeah, it is kind of an odd thing here. Uh, Study note, Lord's protective oversight comforted those he had called the apple of his eye. Brings us all the way back to chapter 2, verse 8. So again, kind of a, a poetic comfort to the people here of, here I will be on guard with my very own eyes I am watching. And so it's this very personal protection for the people here, this great comfort that, you know, these many nations aren't going to come back and wipe away God's, God's people here, that he himself is putting himself as the guard and the watcher over them. Yeah, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go as far as saying that, you know, he's 
wasn't looking before. But I mean, you see kind of as the face of God turned and upon the people versus him turning away. So you have some of that kind of language, but here I, I think more just for the sense of comfort for them. That he, you know, this encamping, this guarding, and this watching over them. So here in verse 9, we'll get a passage that's very familiar to us. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this king that is coming. Again, if you were thinking of this earthly kingdom, Zechariah speaking about here, well, I think verse 9 kind of puts the kibosh on that. Who do we see coming in on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a donkey? Our Lord himself. Which in the Gospels, we have this passage specifically quoted throughout the, especially Matthew 21, we see it clearly posted there. So the king, the king of Zion, not a kingdom of this world that he's speaking of, but rather the king of kings, our Lord himself, the king that is coming with salvation, mounted on a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. So we have the king coming on just a little humble donkey. Verses, verse 10. Will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. So we have this great contrast of the king that is coming on a humble donkey versus all these war horses, these chariots, and everything that he will cut off. Even the battle bow. And this king will come and speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So the waterless pit, your study note, uh, symbolizes the hopeless condition of one under the curse of the law. So there being no water within this pit. So the one who is coming, the blood of his covenant With his people, he will set the prisoners free. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So again, here we just get this picture of the coming king that will come, that he will set his people free, bringing about salvation, using his people as his bow, as it were, and against, or stirring up your sons of Zion against, you know, your sons of Greece, so against these other nations. So the Lord is coming and waging this battle against the unbelievers here. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, just these weapons. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. So this Lord coming, he's appearing with the sounds of trumpets, devouring all these nations and bringing about this peace. Again, what day are we thinking of here? Our Lord coming, appearing with the sounds of trumpets. 
Yeah, exactly. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. So the flock of his people. If you have a flock, you need a shepherd who is our good shepherd, our Lord. And his people are the jewels of a crown. So you, his very own people, are the jewels of his own crown, which we don't think of ourselves as these jewels of our Lord's crown, but we are his holy treasures that he places into our crown, and he shows us forth as this great and this great jewel and treasure of his. They shall shine on his land. So his people being shown around as his precious and beloved jewels. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. So this, again, we have, we'll see this here at Yeah, we have a couple minutes for at least the start of chapter 10. So just for the sake of a no chapter break, just to get started in verse 1. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. So in verse 17, we have this grain, this new wine and everything. And so we have this great abundance, this great blessing, this great peace that the Lord is bringing about, this new heavens, this new earth, where there is plentiful rain, plentiful springs, this new wine for all here, this grain that will come and flourish in the land. The Lord will bring about showers to everyone, the vegetation of the field. All right, so here, again, we're just getting some pictures of, again, that last day of this new age that is to come, this coming of the peace that our Lord is bringing to us. Present tense and also waiting for that future, that final day when the Lord brings about complete completion of all of these things for us to behold and enjoy here. Questions on that? All right. Verse 2 For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. So we have these household gods, you know, every household would have these little, tiny little statues in their house of all their false gods, and saying, during this, you know, this. While there is this great peace, there's still this household, these nonsense gods that are just completely and utterly useless, not even uttering nonsense, really. They're just completely useless, silent, as we see throughout the scriptures. The diviners are seeing lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. So again, in verse 16, we had the Lord's people being the flock. But here with this people that have household gods that utter nonsense, they are like a sheep that have no shepherd to guide them. So we see that in Matthew nine thirty-six of the Lord having compassion on these wayward people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So no one there to guide them. They just have these false gods sitting up in their little windowsills there. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. Again, they should know better, but yet they are leading the people astray in all these ways. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, 
from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. So Lord, caring for his, his flock, his chosen people, and using them to wage this battle. So we have the church militant here, the church going about in this battle here. From him shall come. So we have the first one's obviously Christ. Christ as the cornerstone. That one's easy. The tent peg is a little bit more difficult. You can look at Isaiah thirty three twenty, and then you also have um, in Judges of Jael and Cicero. Remember, she comes and tent peg. So we have that whole thing. But what does a tent peg do for a tent? It keeps it secure here. Oh man, we're out of time. We'll have to go there next. Again, great cliffhanger here. You'll have to come back to see some passages about the tent peg. That's not just Jael and Cicero. So we'll pick up with that next. Let me make a note, or else I'm going to forget where we're at. Yeah, we'll pick up in like three, three or four there for next week. Again, next, by next week, we'll have decided on a book to pick up after the Minor Prophets. If it's kind of torn between a couple that we think are viable options, and we may put it up to a vote. We've got some suggestions, so if you have any more, hurry up and let me know so it can be put in the running. Any final questions before we end for today? The Lord be with you.